As nutritionists and livestock producers focus more on the intestinal health of their animals, more attention has been paid to pre, pro, and postbiotics. But a good deal of misunderstanding persists about what these products are and what they might do for the animal's health and productivity. Welcome to Feedstuffs in Focus, our podcast taking a deeper look at the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and animal feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us today. At the fourth annual Kemen Intestinal Health Symposium held earlier this month, veterinarians, nutritionists, and food animal producers from around the world discussed the latest research on topics related to intestinal health, specifically in the livestock space. In this episode, we talk with one of the presenters at the symposium, Tanya Cubitt, an equine nutritionist with Performance Horse Nutrition. Cubitt explains the basics of these three product categories and how her insights from the world of performance horses can help food animal producers better understand what's happening in their animals' GI tracts and how to unlock the potential benefits from using pre, pro, and postbiotics as part of the nutrition plan. Dr. Cubitt, I wonder if we could start with, for folks who weren't in the room when you gave your presentation at the seminar, with maybe a high concept, 30,000 foot view, what was it you were asked to discuss with the audience and, and what were the kind of key messages you were bringing to the table? I was asked to discuss pre, pro, and postbiotics as the puzzle that it is and how it pertains to uh, production, animals, livestock. I actually come from an equine background, so I was giving the equine perspective, which for the audience is completely different to what they're used to. Um, they're used to being able to control variables, house animals in similar conditions, and have one person who is kind of asking, um, giving them their measure of success and making the decisions. And in my world, I have uh, a barn full of horses and every single one of them is different. And maybe they all have different owners that all have different measures of success. So kind of just going through the basics. I, I went through the basics of the equine digestive tract for the audience because maybe they're not familiar with horses. And then some of the challenges just in the actual GI tract. And then talk about the individual pre, pro, and postbiotics that are available to equine, what they are, and then how my clients actually choose these. Most of them uh, will use the internet, unfortunately. <laughs> and then how do I choose? <laughs> um, I'm supposed to be doing it a lot more correctly than them and, and just looking at different um, criteria for choosing these products, uh, research, safety, stability, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, the audience listening to us right now is is very diverse. We could be talking in different species, but also in terms of level and depth of knowledge of these products. Uh, you know, the, the PhD nutritionists listening to us are are, are probably reading from the same hymnal, uh, but but maybe someone who is out in a barn, you know, managing production flow, maybe aren't as steeped in the weeds. Let's start with maybe some foundational, definitional uh, terms. What is a pre, post, and probiotic? <laughs> what, what, what are the differences, similarities? Some of these terms we weren't using five, ten years ago even. They've just seemed to proliferate it here in the last decade or so. They've been there, but maybe we weren't talking about them. What, what do they mean? Certainly, certainly. And I think if people follow human nutrition, they're, they're, they're also getting thrown these terms, um, whether it be on their social media feed or the Internet or, or on the news. But <clears throat> it all comes back to 
gut health and the microbiome. Microbiome is also a new term, but really the, the gut microbes, the microbes that live in your gut, um, there are microbiomes or bacterial communities in, in all parts of your body, be it your lungs or your skin, but I'm really focusing on the gut microbiome. And all livestock species have uh, gut microbes, and there is this direct link between these gut microbes and the brain. We call that the gut-brain axis, and it's, it's quite fascinating in uh, how much control the gut actually has over the whole body. Some people even call it the second brain. And so we're really getting into um, all animals, livestock, equine, pets, um, uh, suffer from stress. And stress really interferes with that microbiome. So if we can't take away a lot of those stresses, I can't tell my horse riders to stop riding their horses or trailering them. We're not going to you know, stop managing pigs and chickens the way we do. So we need to, to add things to the diet that are going to mitigate that stress. And they happen to be pre, pro, and postbiotics. But the probiotics, by definition, need to be live. So they're live microbes that we're putting into the gut that are going to um, help to proliferate that microbial community that's already there, add more soldiers to the army, really. The prebiotics, that's the food. That is going to be food that you can put into the diet that is into the gut that's going to feed those probiotics, those live microbes. So you also want to be choosing the correct prebiotics that are going to match up with the probiotics that you've chosen. You want to have the right food for them. And then postbiotics, this new term, is metabolites that are created by those microbes. And they're supposed to, to be a to be considered a postbiotic, they have to have some health benefit, confer some health benefit to the host. Um, and then these bugs, they create a lot of metabolites, but not all of them are good. So to be a postbiotic, we're, we're harvesting those, those good um, metabolites. That's a really good, I think, concise definition of those three different classes of products. Thank you for explaining that so clearly. I, I liked how you referred back to human nutrition and the things I might see in my social media feed. Uh, apparently, you know, I've spent some time on Instagram and always marvel at some of the, the frou-frou and fairy dust and things that are out there. But in this space, one of the things I find really interesting is the, the passage of different nutritional trends from maybe the human space to companion animals, and we might put equine into that, into that bucket for purposes of our discussion on through into the food animal space. What, what are you seeing there in terms of how those trends are, are shaping up right now? And, and, and have I described that, first of all, fairly in terms of how trends pass maybe from one class of, of live critters to the next? I think definitely that you're spot on. Um, you know, we, for technical terms, uh, horses are considered livestock, but they're really not. They're companion animals. And the people that own them do make decisions um, based on what they're doing in their own own kitchen, in their own home, what they're doing with their, and the same with cats and dogs. So I do see a lot of the trends or fads that come from human nutrition. Um, I get asked about them all the time. Should I be adding this to my horse's diet or my dog or my cat? Uh, in the livestock industry, there is more, I would say less fad because we have a definite and clear measure of success and a very clear financial uh, kind of accountability as to whether these fads or these technologies are actually going to work. 
Um, they, there is a kind of a saying in the equine industry, how do you make a million dollars with horses? Well, you start with three. <laughs> I, I'm glad to know it was, uh, was three. I wondered what the conversion factor was. Uh, grew, these days, it's probably I, 10. I, I, I grew up with, you know, purebred beef cattle, and we always just used to say, how do you make a small fortune in the cattle industry? You start with a large fortune. So, yeah, I'm glad to, glad to know some things haven't changed. Now, thinking about the data, the research you talked about that, that we tend to rely on more in the food animal space, What's the body of research look like for these different classes of products? What, what do we know versus maybe what we hope or think? Hmm, that is a great question and something that I did discuss in my presentation. I think a huge flaw, especially in the equine supplement industry in general and specifically with probiotics, is there's really no standardization of labeling or requirements set by the government. And you can put anything in a bag and sell it. Um, and there was a recent study that looked at 11 different commercially available probiotic supplements that um, they actually call out by name and they're supplements that people use quite frequently and not a single one of them actually met the label claim. The probiotics did not, the amount of probiotic, the amount of live microbes in the product once you just open the bucket None of them met the label claim. And so I think that's where we need to start. We need to start with um, fully understanding, uh, handling, processing, stability of the actual ingredients we're using. Because I think that all of those companies chose those probiotics with very good intentions, but then somewhere along the way, it all fell apart. Mm. Um, and so I think we need to be working with companies that are addressing that, not just does it work in the horse, but now can I put it in a bucket? Can I sit it on a shelf? Can I put it in a tube? Um, somebody buys a supplement and then a year later they decide, oh, I might use that. <laughs> right. Is it still going to be viable? Yeah. So I think, I think that's a huge flaw in the equine industry. Um, the research, there is research being done on equine um, gut health supplements all the time to the extent of other livestock species, to the extent of some of the science we've seen here at this present at this conference. No, not at all. But we we extrapolate what where we can. You you mentioned earlier something I wanted to pick your brain a little further about is you're looking at different challenges, stresses, issues maybe if we want to look at glasses half full, opportunities for unlocking performance, whatever metric that might look like. When you're working with your clients and the, the, the animals under your care, what are the things you're looking at and in and, and the context of pre-post and, and probiotics where you say, hey, here's where maybe this kind of product could be helpful to us. What are some of the scenarios where you're looking and saying, yeah, this applies? That's, that's also a great question because it really then depends on the goal. And, and that's really how I summarized my presentation was, what is the goal? What are we trying to do? Do we just have a 15-year-old quarter horse that's somebody's pet and we're just trying to avoid them having any gastrointestinal issues? Or is it a, a three-day event horse that's traveling around the world or a, a thoroughbred stallion shuttling around the world under high stress? So I have to first find out what, what is the problem that we're trying to address. We also know that probiotics is a very gen, kind of umbrella term. There are so many different um, live microbes that we can add to the diet, and they all have a specific role. There are certain probiotics that if you put into a neonatal fall diet, they will cause diarrhea to be worse. It doesn't mean that's a bad probiotic and shouldn't be fed to horses. It just wasn't correct for that situation. 
Um, if we see a lot of stress in horses, maybe, you know, pony gets into the grain room kind of thing and eats a bunch of grain they shouldn't have, we're going to see an influx in lactic acid producing bacteria in their gut. So we wouldn't want to add a probiotic that had more lactic acid producing bacteria. But in a situation where we've had a horse on antibiotics and we've killed everything, then the lactic acid producing bacteria need to be put back in. So I really have to clearly define what is the goal and then we choose supplements based on their goals. But in the horse industry also, I have to then find out, you know, I'll give a client a perfect situation. If everything aligned, this is what I would do. But then I also have to work within their budget and their management strategies. So all the constraints. Yeah, the resource pool is not limitless uh, no. more often than not. Uh, looking at something you, you said earlier that really intrigued me, you you used the word uh, the internet mm -hmm. several times there and what your clients might do. I, I often think about, you know, in the human health space, you, you go on the internet with any given substance, uh, any given set of symptoms, you're probably going to die. Yes, <laughs> the, absolutely. The internet will convince you you are going to die. But you talked about how you approach evaluating different products and scenarios, some of the scenarios you just discussed. What's your thought process? Are there... Uh, recommendations you could give to producers and nutritionists listening to us now that here's how you should evaluate these products, different lenses or, or things that, you know, they should keep in mind when they're evaluating the options. Oh, yeah. And this is, this is where I, I struggle, to be honest, because over the last several years, obviously with everything that's gone in the, on in the world, you've heard over and over again, do your research, do your research. <laughs> have you done the research? How does one really do the research? I know that I have access to uh, a library of journal articles, but the general producer or horse owner doesn't have access. It's really expensive. Mm. I have access through a university. Um, so it's very, you know, and they're, they're then at the mercy of um, lay publications that may be taking some of that research and rewriting it themselves. Maybe they've rewritten it correctly, maybe they haven't, or whatever they've read on the internet. So ultimately for my horse clients, it's, um, I try to become part of a person's team and I encourage them, whether you're working with me or whoever you're working with, that put a team in place that you trust so that you can rely on them and you know whichever company that you're working with you should be able to talk to them find out you know they should be transparent enough to give you the research that they've done um so it it is not as simple as it seems mm -hmm. to for a horse owner to choose i think in the livestock industry it's a little easier because they do have you know a, a, an incredible body of people all helping them make these decisions and like i said there's a financial gain in the end so if it doesn't work we're not going to do it if it worked great um so so definitely in the equine I, i'm not really answering the question very well because it's there isn't a real clear answer it's mm -hmm. very hard for people to do the research and and, f and find those that quality information out there when there's just a myriad of terrible stuff out there. Well, and no different Muddying from, the waters. No different from human yes. medicine or, mm. or nutrition in particular. I, yes. I was marveled when I first started working in the dairy nutrition space in particular. I'm like, gosh, a dairy nutritionist can pull about a thousand different levers and we can figure out how to increase milk fat by two-tenths of a percent and that mm -hmm. yields dollars and cents. But 
we can't tell people what to eat so that the, the, they avoid all of these other problems. Absolutely. And the, it, it, it's wild, the very differences. Of course, humans like horses are wild animals, right? Yes. They're <laughs> very different from the food animal space. When I try to get people to understand the equine industry, I really ask, I say just look around the room and look at the diversity in people. Um, hair color, eye color, height, weight, you know, all of those things, that's what I deal with on a daily basis. There is no two animals the same, no two management systems the same, no two owners the same. Mm -hmm. uh, so it becomes challenging. I want to finish up kind of our, our time together looking ahead. I always like mm. to ask what I call the crystal ball question. So put your, your, your forward-looking glasses on, peer into your crystal ball, what do you see happening in the space over the, the next decade? What's coming down the line that maybe folks listening here uh, aren't paying attention to or haven't seen yet in, in uh, their far-off glasses? Well, if you were a glasses-half-empty kind of person, you could have listened to my presentation and thought, oh, well, she's really not against probiotics because of so many flaws and the research is not showing that they're actually in the, pro in the supplements. I strongly believe in pre, pro, and postbiotics for, for horses. I think we're doing more research. As an equine nutritionist, I'm extrapolating what I see when I come to meetings like this, and I see what other people in other livestock industries are doing. Um, I also think that instead of just focusing on this is the best prebiotic, or that's the best probiotic, or that's the best postbiotic, we need to start putting them all together, which combination of those three are going to work the best together to be better than their individual parts. And I think that that is a little bit of a challenge at the moment because companies either sell prebiotics or probiotics or postbiotics. Uh, not many are kind of manufacturing or developing all three of them. So I, th I think that's a direction, but also in the horse industry, it's, it's just stepping back. In any industry, it's it's not just gut health. It's kind of a whole puzzle of, of different management factors. And I can list mine, and a dairy producer can list their uh, setbacks. And if we try to address all of those and look at it, I tend not to use the word holistic because people kind of have a <laughs> wrong connotation of it being hippie. But really that holistic view of looking at the whole animal and all of the inputs that are affecting that animal instead of just trying to focus on one. Um, then I think that's the direction and, and more specialized um, kind of gut health supplements that are going to be specific to different disease states or physiological states. And we're still learning what those different states actually look like so that you can't fix it until you know what's broken. Mm -hmm. So we need to know what we're breaking by doing all of these things so that then we can go in and fix it. The last thing I want to want to ask you is, you know, referring back to, you mentioned earlier a study that looked at some different probiotics, and none of the ones in the study met the label claims. At the risk of getting myself off the Christmas card list of every manufacturer in the space, is, is there additional regulation that needs to come into this space? Is there are there additional standard setting bodies that need to get involved? What what would more of an ideal state look like for you as a practitioner in the space to, to get to that where, hey, I know if I buy X, I'm getting X, mm -hmm. not X Absolutely. maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, and ultimately, if you're putting it on a label, it is a legally binding document. So it, there, there are rules that it's supposed to be there. But again, you know, there's so many hours in the day and not enough people that are going to actually regulate all of that. But 
From a consumer standpoint, I I have been talking with different manufacturers about um, maybe some kind of guarantee that, you know, after a certain amount of time, we're still going to guarantee that these are all live. Um, I really think that labeling needs to be cleaned up. I mean, I just did my own little research on... Um, expiration dates. These are live microbes, so there should be an expiration date. At some point, they might die. Um, and very few equine supplements actually list an expiration date. Simple things like correct storage and handling. In that study, several of the products didn't actually even list any storage or handling. So can I leave it in the back of my truck? Can I put it, you know, others would say store in cool, dry conditions. Well, for someone in Minnesota, that's different than to someone in Florida. So I think just um, cleaning up the how to handle my specific product and then manufacturers actually need to do some research on how do you actually handle my product. So I think I need I would like to put some more accountability back on manufacturers to do some of that work so that they can, with good faith, actually, you know, what they're selling is actually going to be in the product. Because the promise of the product is, is there. You know, mm-hmm. you, as you said, you're a believer in the product. Yeah. So the, the, the gap between what's possible mm-hmm. versus what's actually happening. You want, we want to close yes. that gap somehow. Absolutely. My thanks to Tanya Cubitt for her insights into intestinal health and for helping us better understand the role pre, pro, and postbiotics might play in food animal production specifically. You can read more of our coverage of the Intestinal Health Symposium coming up in the November issue of Feedstuffs in just a few weeks. Meanwhile, you'll find the October issue and past editions by visiting feedstuffs.com and clicking on Digital Editions. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuffs in Focus. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and animal feed industries, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts, or check out our website, feedstuffs.com, for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day, and thanks for listening.